dear loving Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us the privilege of life. We are grateful, Lord, because we understand that if you were to treat us according to our sins and according to what we deserve, we will not be among the living. We do not deserve this life, but yet in your mercy and kindness you've given it to us. Therefore, we pray, dear Lord, please take our lives and let it be consecrated to thee. Make us instruments to bring glory and praise to your name. As we walk along in life, this matter of bringing glory to your name with our lives, we realize that we have an opposition in our flesh to it. We have an opposition that comes from the devil. Therefore, we ask for strength. Your word can sanctify us and we pray that as we fellowship with you now, that you will sanctify us with your word. Dear Lord, I ask that you consecrate me to your service and put your word in my mouth that I may speak blessings, edification and strength to all your children who are listening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Conflict and Courage, December 16 A Good Fight I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 and 8 Through his long term of service, Paul had never faltered in his allegiance to his Savior. Wherever he was, whether before scowling Pharisees or Roman authorities, before the furious mob at Lystra or the convicted sinners in the Macedonian dungeon, whether reasoning with the panic-stricken sailors on the shipwrecked vessel or standing alone before Nero to plead for his life, he had never been ashamed of the cause he was advocating. The one great purpose of his Christian life had been to serve him whose name had once filled him with contempt and from this purpose no opposition or persecution had been able to turn him aside. Paul's life was an exemplification of the truths he taught and herein lay his power. His heart was filled with a deep abiding sense of his responsibility and he labored in close communion with him who is the fountain of justice, mercy and truth. The love of the Savior was the undying motive that upheld him in his conflicts with self and in his struggles against evil as in the service of Christ he pressed forward against the unfriendliness of the world and the opposition of his enemies. What the church needs in these days of peril is an army of workers who, like Paul, have educated themselves for usefulness, who have a deep experience in the things of God and who are filled with earnestness and zeal. Sanctified self-sacrificing men are needed. 
men who will not shun trial and responsibility, men who are brave and true, men in whose hearts Christ is formed, the hope of glory, and who with lips touched with holy fire will preach the word. Will our young men accept the holy trust at the hands of their fathers? Are they preparing to fill the vacancies made by the death of the faithful? Will the apostles' charge be heeded, the call to duty be heard, amidst the incitements to selfishness and ambition that allure the youth? Amen. The title of our devotion for today is A Good Fight. We have been looking at the life of the Apostle Paul and how he was able to use his life to the glory of the Lord. And this should be an inspiration and an encouragement to us to understand that if we choose, we can live a self-sacrificing life for the good of others, pressing towards the mark of the high calling of Christ. Paul, in every circumstance he had found himself, always used the opportunity to serve the Lord, to bring others to a knowledge of the truth, not necessarily just speaking to them, but looking for the right opportunity so that he can preach to them, like we saw in our previous devotion, how it is that while on the ship down to the island of Melita and down to Rome, all through this time it was months Paul was chained in, chained as a prisoner, but those chains did not chain him in his heart. He was free in Christ and he was the leader of that ship and leader of the prisoners and taught them about the Lord. Many souls were brought to the knowledge of the truth and the gospel advanced. No self-pity was cherished by him. Instead, he was thankful, sitting in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, though he was in chains. This is an example for us, this man Paul, the kind of faith he exercised, the life he lived, the sacrifices he made is there on record for us, that we may be inspired with the same faith that we may do exploits for the Lord like he did. In the book of Matthew 10 verse 21 and 22, Jesus prophesied concerning all those who like Paul and also like Peter and the other apostles will give themselves over to do the work of the Lord. It says, And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the child shall rise up against their parents, and the children shall rise up against their parents, and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Amen. Concerning Peter, Jesus had told him, concerning how he, he will die when he is old. In John 21 verse 18, Jesus said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou was young, thou girdest thyself and walkest, whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest. The time had come for these words to be fulfilled. Both Peter and Paul were prisoners of Nero. As for Paul, at the first time when he was summoned, he preached so mightily that those who heard were touched and some of them were even converted into the truth. 
Nero himself was affected as he heard of the coming judgment Paul preached about. But like his fellow rulers and kings like Felix and Festus and Herod Agrippa, he did not respond to the message. Something had happened in Rome. Nero himself had done something very terrible, setting the place on fire, and people were agitated, and in order to divert attention from himself, he pointed at the Christians, saying that they were the ones that set the city on fire. He took Paul and Peter and locked them up in prison. This time, he wouldn't want to give Paul the opportunity to speak. Reading from Sketches from the Life of Paul, page 328, in paragraph 3, it says, The emperor's malice against Paul was heightened by the fact that members of the imperial household and also other persons of distinction had been converted to Christianity during his first imprisonment. For this reason, he made the second imprisonment much more severe than the first, granting him little opportunity to preach the gospel, and he determined to cut short his life as soon as a plausible pretext could be found for so doing. Nero's mind was so impressed with the force of the apostle's words at his last trial that he deferred the decision of the case, neither acquitting nor condemning him, but the sentence was only deferred. It was not long before the decision was pronounced, which consigned Paul to a martyr's grave. Being a Roman citizen, he could not be subjected to torture and was therefore sentenced to be beheaded. That's about Paul. End of quote. But for Peter's case, I'll read because he was not a Roman. It says in page 329, paragraph 1, still from the same book, Sketches from the Life of Paul, it says Peter, as a Jew and a foreigner, was condemned to be scourged and crucified. In prospect of this fearful death, the apostle remembered his great sin in denying Jesus in the hour of trial. And his only thought was that he was unworthy of so great an honor as to die in the same manner as did his master. Peter had sincerely repented of that sin and had been forgiven by Christ, as is shown by the high commission given him to feed the sheep and lambs of the flock. But he could never forgive himself. Not even the thought of the agonies of the last terrible scene could lessen the bitterness of his sorrow and repentance. As a last favor, he entreated his executioners that he might be nailed to the cross with his head downward. The request was granted, and in this manner died the great apostle Peter." End of quote. What Nero thought to avoid by not allowing Paul to speak was still achieved even though Paul was silenced by his conduct, by Paul's conduct as he was led to his death. Lives were touched as they beheld him. Reading again, sketches from the life of Paul, page 329, paragraph 2, we are told. Paul was led in a private manner to the place of execution. His persecutors, alarmed at the event of his influence, feared that converts might be won to Christianity even by the scenes of his death. Hence, few spectators were allowed to be present. But the hardened soldiers appointed to attend him listened to his words and with amazement saw him cheerful and even joyous in prospect of such a death. His spirit of forgiveness towards his murderers and his unwavering confidence in Christ to the very last proved a savour of life unto life to some who witnessed his martyrdom. More than one ere long accepted the Saviour whom Paul preached and fearlessly sealed their faith 
with their blood. Amen. End of quote. The blood of the martyrs is indeed seed, and we have been told that there is no pulpit like the martyrs' pile. When we learn to be self-forgetful, when we learn to think of others more than of ourselves, and banish the thoughts of self-pity from our mind, the Lord can use us mightily. Even though Paul was going to be beheaded, we read here clearly that this man was not sad. He was joyous. He was cheerful in the prospect of such a death. My brothers and sisters, do you see the need to have a change of mindset concerning what is an honor and what is dishonor? If we truly have learned of Christ, we will learn that to drink of the cup of the Lord and to be baptized with his baptism is the highest honor that can come to us. And at the prospect of persecution, we will rejoice. Jesus said, rejoice. And it is no joke. Paul literally rejoiced. He's not saying rejoice in your mind. Literally, we could see Paul. He was joyous. He was not sad, but he was cheerful at the prospect of such a death. And how about Peter? The same thing. He considered it too great an honor for him to be crucified the same way Christ was crucified and requested to be crucified upside down that he may not, at least he may fall short of drinking everything of the cup and being baptized with all the baptism that our Lord was baptized with, not out of fear, but out of respect and out of his own sense of his unworthiness. He felt, oh no, this honor is too much for me. And what was the honor? Crowns? Mansions? No. Crucifixion. That is the honor. What honor are you looking for on this earth, O Christian? What honor are you looking for? Glories of this earth? If you have learned of Christ, you would understand that the honor that you receive on this earth is persecution. It is to drink of the cup of the Lord and to be baptized with the baptism wherewith he is baptized. So did our fellow brothers and the apostles understand it and they cheerfully drank of that cup. And we should learn to drink cheerfully of the same cup. We'll talk more about that as we go on. Reading from Sketches from the Life of Paul, page 316, paragraph 2 and downward, we are told that it was not long after this that Nero sailed on his expedition to Greece, where he disgraced himself and his kingdom by the most contemptible and debasing frivolity. He returned to Rome with great pomp, and his golden, in his golden palace, surrounded by the most infamous of his courtiers, he engaged in scenes of revolting debauchery. In the midst of their revelry, a voice of a tumult, as of a tumult in the streets was heard. To cut the long story short, the people planned and they came and they killed Nero himself. I want to read what Nero said. It says, like one beside himself, he rushed hither and thither, beating his forehead and crying, I am lost, I am lost. He had not like the faithful Paul, a powerful compassionate God to rely upon in his hour of peril. He knew that if taken prisoner, he would be subjected to insult and torture. And he considered how it, he might end his miserable life. Well, he tried to end his life. Guess what? He was not even brave enough to do it. He couldn't end his life. But eventually, he says, one of the few companions who had followed him suggested that he escape to a country seat a few miles distant where he might find safety. But this didn't work out for him. Eventually, his retreat was discovered a few moments and he would be in the power of his enemies. Terrified alike at the thought of torture and suicide, he still hesitated and was compelled at last to let a slave help his trembling hand force a dagger into his throat. 
Thus perished the tyrant Nero at the early age of 32. End of quote. And this is not the end that we want. If we live our, live our lives like Nero, that is the same end we will get, which is we will come to the end of our lives and we won't have a savior to depend upon. Look at how he was running Helter Skelter. Paul wasn't running away because he had a savior. We all come to our end in the, at one time or the other. Death comes for us all. But when the unfaithful and the sinful die, it will be without honor. But for those who are of Christ, it will be with honor. Going on from that, let us learn now what it means to fight the good fight. During Jesus' ministry on earth, when he told the disciples of his coming death and the sufferings which they were going to pass through, they shrank from the prospect and instead were in self-pity. Reading from Education, page 88, paragraph 3, we are told, Often Jesus, the burden heavy upon his own heart, sought to open to the disciples the scenes of his trial and suffering. But their eyes were holding. Their knowledge was unwelcome, and they did not see. Self-pity that shrank from fellowship with Christ in suffering prompted Peter's remonstrance. Pity thyself, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. Matthew 16, verse 22. His words expressed the thought and feeling of the twelve, end of quote. But now they were ready to bear the pain and suffering and cheerfully they laid down their lives for Jesus. Reading Manuscript Releases, Volume 12, page 305, paragraph 1, it says, Bear in mind that Jesus is afflicted in all our afflictions. He became in our behalf a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You are being brought into profound sympathy with the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ as you are partaking of his sufferings. You will be sharers of his glory which will be revealed. Let the grasp of your faith become more firm and the measure of your love for Jesus deeper and more abiding." End of quote. You see, before Paul's death, he had written to Timothy saying in the book of 2 Timothy 4 verse 6 to 8, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. You see, he was never in a faithless, sad, gloomy mood. While to men, Paul was facing apparent death, all Paul could see could see, was a coronation and honor and glory. He spoke of finally being victorious in his fight. He called it a good fight. Good because of the fruit of the fight, which is a character like that of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and also eternal life. Now, having achieved the character of Christ, he was then crowned with the greatest honor that can be given to a servant. He drank from his master's cup and baptized of his baptism. Reading Philippians 1 verse 28 to 30, Paul himself said, And in nothing, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. I'll just dwell on that. When you manifest a spirit of cheerfulness and joy, that in nothing you are terrified. You're not terrified by anything that your adversary does to you. When they see the boldness with which you receive what they give to you, whether it is mockery, ridicule, whether it is loss of your job, whether it is the pain that they inflict on you, we are to take it without fear. We are not to be terrified. That's why he says, in nothing terrified by your adversaries. When you conduct yourself like that, he says, it is an 
evidence, evident token of perdition to them. They will realize that they are going to be destroyed, that there is judgment coming for them because of the way you conducted yourself. But to you it is salvation. Going on in verse 29 and 30, he says, For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and here, and now here to be in me. Ministry of Healing, page 478, paragraph 2 says, Of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. Not Enoch, who was translated to heaven, not Elijah, who ascended in a chariot of fire, was greater or more honored than John the Baptist, who perished alone in the dungeon. End of quote. Do you see it this way? And I keep reiterating it. Look at Elijah. Compare Elijah, translated without seeing death. Enoch, translated without seeing death. John the Baptist beheaded, Paul beheaded, Peter crucified on the cross. If you were to ask which one would you want to experience as a great honor, we would all think that, oh, Elijah was so honored, Enoch was so honored, these men are probably the most honored men that ever lived. You are getting it all wrong. The greatest honor that can be given to you is not to be translated to heaven without seeing death. It is not to have chariots of fire come to carry you but rather fellowship with Christ in his sufferings, that is the greatest honor. This is the reason why Jesus asked John and James when they requested to sit on the right hand and the left of him, he asked them, can you drink of my cup and to be baptized with my baptism? Why? Because he realized that for you to come and sit at the right and left hand, you must have a higher experience. You must pass through something that is really worth it. Reading from Manuscript Releases, page 305, paragraph 2, we are told, The Lord permits great trials to come upon his loved ones. He tries them as gold. Now is your opportunity to show that you do trust in your Redeemer, even though in the crucible of affliction. Be cheerful. Let your cheerfulness be seen in your countenance because you have Jesus by your side to watch with you. You may converse with Jesus. You may say, The Lord is my helper. I shall not be moved. You may find blessed opportunities to speak to some soul words of courage and sow seed that will spring up and bear fruit. Let all see in whom you place your trust. End of quote. Amen. That's the lesson again. In times of affliction, we are to bear it cheerfully, knowing that we do not deserve any better. The question is, what is a good fight? And how can we get ourselves to fight the good fight? Before Peter passed away, like Paul, he knew very well what was going to befall him and he wrote in second peter 1 verse 12 to 15 he said wherefore i will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things what are these things we'll look at it though you know them and be established in the present truth yeah i think it meet as long as i am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance knowing that shortly i must put off this tabernacle even as our lord jesus had shown me Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. So, what is the thing that Paul is, that Peter felt, the thing he's referring to as these things? What are those things that he felt should be in our remembrance before he died? It is about the good fight and how to be victorious in it. The good fight is the struggle to have the image of God restored in us, that we may be partakers of the divine nature and to be finally partakers of the 
kingdom of God and enter into it. For this reason, before his death, Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1 verse 3 and 4, According as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. This is the good fight, and anyone who has that divine nature, which was originally ours, restored in them, is victorious in the fight. The greatest battle ever fought is the battle against self. In this battle against self, we are trying to replace the selfish nature with the divine, and it is only through the Holy Spirit's work in us that this can be achieved, and it is a work that must be done with the greatest diligence and care. In light of this, Peter writes in the book of 2 Peter 1, reading from verse 5 to 8, and beside this, giving all diligence as carefulness, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, this is how the image of God, the divine nature, is restored by patiently and diligently carefully waging a holy war against our own natures, against ourselves. But what is the result of not fighting this good fight? Peter writes in verse 9 to 11. But he that lacketh these things, remember we just read some things we are to add faith, and to faith we are to add virtue, then knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, and brotherly kindness. Says, and then charity. It says, he that lacketh these things I just listed now is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see that? So this is the result of fighting or not fighting. If we do not fight, what happens? We will not enter the kingdom of God. But if we do these things, if they are in us, an entrance shall be ministered unto us abundantly into the kingdom of God. And this is the experience we must all have carefully patiently fighting the battle against self that the image of jesus may be revealed in us as opposed to being impatient we manifest patience as opposed to being belligerent and covetous and selfish we would have brotherly kindness and charity love in our hearts for one another we would have faith to believe and trust the lord that we can move forward virtuous principles will be seen in us the fruits of the Spirit will be exhibited. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. All these virtues being restored in us shows that we are being victorious in the fight. And it is indeed a good fight. And whatever decisions are made, whatever steps are taken to see that these qualities are in us shows that we are fighting a good fight. Paul himself was able to fight this good fight and in it, he pressed forward and was victorious. Reading from Conflict and Courage, page 356, paragraph 3, we are told, 
Paul's life was an exemplification of the truths he taught, and herein lay his power. His heart was filled with a deep abiding sense of his responsibility, and he labored in close communion with him who is the fountain of justice, mercy, and truth. The love of the Savior was the undying motive. That's what the key is. The foundation, the love of the Savior, was the undying motive that upheld him in his conflicts with self and in his struggles against evil. Do you know that? What is the thing that will help us in this struggle with self? The love of the Savior. I repeat it. The love of the Savior. It is what upheld Paul in his conflict with self and his struggle against evil as in the service of Christ he pressed forward against the unfriendliness of the world and the opposition of his enemies. End of quote. So my brothers and sisters, how can this battle against self be won? I would say, seeing that the only way we can be transformed and self can be um, overcome is by beholding Christ. Like Paul said, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, he said, that we all beholding us in the glass, the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ are changed to the same image from glory to glory. So what is the principle? By beholding, we are changed. What does it mean to behold Christ? It means that we should love him. But how can we love him? We must behold him. We must first of all behold him before we love him. So beholding Christ is a very important thing because you cannot know whom you have not beheld and you cannot love whom you do not know. So how can this battle against self be won? Let me take that again so that to be clearer. We must love Christ in order to be successful in the battle against self. But how can we love someone we do not know? So we need to know Christ. But how can we know whom we have not seen? We need to behold Christ. So the foundation of the battle against self is to behold him and that's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 that we all beholding as in a glass the image of the Son of God are changed into the same image from glory to glory. While it is true that love is what will help us but then we cannot love Jesus unless we take out time to study him and to know him then in love for him will find out that we can serve him. Service for the Lord will not become a drudgery. The sacrifices we make will make them pleasantly. We'll be happy to do them like Paul was rejoicing. It will become a pleasure and all the principles, all the things that the Lord asks us to do that we revolt against, whether it's health reform, dress reform, Sabbath reform and all the things that cause us losses and pain like what was, it was causing Paul. He was stoned, he was beaten, he was finally beheaded. How was he able to go through all of this? It was because he had beheld Christ and he had learned to love him so that it was not any difficult thing. Duty was a delight for him. He loved to do it. And all the sacrifices he made, he did them with such great pleasure. Like the Lord Jesus, he could say, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. He could say that. And he could say also, like Jesus said, the Father had not left me because I do always those things that please him. So that's one thing we should have in mind. So let us talk about how the battle against self can be won. Reading from The Faith I Live By, page 87. We are told, By sin we have been severed from the life of God. Our souls are palsied. The sense of sin has poisoned the springs of life. By nature we are alienated from God. The Holy Spirit describes our condition in such words as these dead in trespasses and sins. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint, no soundness in it. We are held fast in the snare of Satan, taken captive by him at his will. 
Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 5, 6 and 6, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 26. God desires to heal us, to set us free. But since this requires an entire transformation, a renewing of our whole nature, we must yield ourselves wholly to Him. The warfare against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. The yielding of self, surrendering all to the will of God, requires a struggle. But the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in holiness. Many realize their helplessness. They are longing for that spiritual life which will bring them into harmony with God and are striving to obtain it. But in vain, let those desponding, struggling ones look up. When sin struggles for the mastery, look to the Savior. His grace is sufficient to subdue sin. Let your grateful heart, trembling with uncertainty, turn to Him. Lay hold on the hope set before you. His strength will help your weakness. He will lead you step by step. Place your hand in His and let Him guide you. He will set free the captive that is held by weakness and misfortune and the chains of sin. He is always near. His loving presence surrounds you. Seek Him as one who desires to be found of you. God's promises, you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Breathing now from Amazing Grace, page 112, paragraph 15, we're told, A noble all-round character is not inherited. It does not come to us by accident. A noble character is earned by individual effort through the merits and grace of Christ. God gives the talents, that is the powers of the mind, we form the character. It is formed, listen now, by hard, stern battles with self. Conflict after conflict must be waged against hereditary tendencies. We shall have to criticize ourselves closely and allow not one unfavorable trait to remain uncorrected. By the life we live through the grace of Christ, the character is formed. The original loveliness begins to be restored to the soul. The attributes of the character of Christ are imparted, and the image of the divine begins to shine forth. The faces of men and women who walk and work with God express the peace of heaven. They are surrounded with the atmosphere of heaven." End of quote. So what are we learning? In these two quotes I have read, there is always a struggle, and this is a constant warfare. Conflict after conflict must be waged against self, and the foundation of it is yield yourself, surrender all your will to God. It requires a struggle, but you must come out victorious. But like I said earlier, what will help us to come out victorious is love. That struggle is only a struggle that is measuring love. What do you love more? Whom do you love more? Many of us love Jesus, but we love something more than Him. So we struggle. And based on how much our love for God is and our love for self is, it, that's, that's where the struggle comes. If our love for God is so great, so far, great, far greater than love for self, the struggle will be less. But when our love for the things of this world and for the pleasures of sin is great and almost equal to that of our love for the Lord, we struggle and we barely give up our will to the Lord because our love is not yet 
great enough. But the more our love grows, the less our struggle. But the less our love is for the Lord, the more our struggle. And if we are in a condition where our love for pleasure and sin is greater than our love for the Lord, then we will not be victorious in the struggle. And that's why we come back to one thing, beholding Christ. That is the foundation. Because it helps us in the struggle to say, I cannot do that thing that will displease my Lord. I'll talk more about that, as, but let me just read a quote now from Gospel Workers of 1892, page 418, paragraph 1 and 2. It says, For every class of temptations, there is a remedy. We are not left to ourselves to fight the battle against self and our sinful natures in our own finite strength. Jesus is a mighty helper, a never-failing support. His followers should develop symmetrical characters by strengthening weak traits. They must become Christ-like in disposition and pure and holy in life. None can do this in their own strength, but Jesus can give the daily grace needed to do this work. None need fail or become discouraged when such ample provision has been made for us. The mind must be restrained and not allowed to wander. It should be trained to dwell upon the scriptures. Even whole chapters may be committed to memory to be repeated when Satan comes in with his temptations. The 58 of Isaiah is a profitable chapter for this purpose. Wall the soul in with the restrictions and instructions given by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. When Satan would lead the mind to dwell upon earthly and sensual things, he is most effectually resisted with, it is written. When he suggests doubts as to whether we are really the people whom God is leading, whom by tests and provings he is preparing to stand in a great day, be ready to meet his insinuations by presenting the clear evidence from the word of God that we are keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus." End of quote. So here is another way we can fight the battle against self, the way our Lord fought it, by the word of God. Because that's what it means to behold Christ, actually. It means to study the word of God, commit the word of God to memory. You would learn two things. One, you'll be memorizing the word of God and knowing the will of God, and you'll be loving the Lord when you see his character and how he has dealt with men in love. And loving him and knowing his will, which is this what we're committing to memory, when we meet temptations, when self is striving for the mastery to do the things that the flesh wants to do, the love for God will come up as a struggle against self. And then the scriptures that we have memorized will be brought to our memory and we will bring up those scriptures and say, it is written. And in bringing up it is written, then we will have walled our soul with the restrictions and instructions given by the word of God. And these restrictions will constrain us. The love of Christ constrained us. That was what Paul said. And because of this constraining and restriction, we will be victorious in every single battle. But, it, we, but we must love the Lord for this to be done. And like I was saying earlier, you see, when you love you find yourself doing things just like Paul, doing things that naturally will not be pleasant to you. But because of the love that you have for the person in question, you will do it. Some people misplace their love today. There are many women, ladies, who are suffering in relationships. Because of the love they have for a certain boy or man, they will do things and make sacrifices that though is unpleasant to their flesh but because of that person who they love and the person says it pleases them they do it many men are doing the same thing today 
we all have the ability to make sacrifices. We all have the ability to delight in doing things that though may not be pleasant, but yet we find pleasure in it and we do it cheerfully. We all have the ability. The Lord has given it to all of us. But it all it just depends on who or what we are going to give such attention and ability to. No one can say that they cannot make sacrifices cheerfully. One way or another, we have done it before and we will do it. But then the question is, do you consider our Lord Jesus worthy of such a sacrifice? Do you consider our Lord Jesus to be worthy of you making sacrifices with pleasure and you doing the duties that he wants you to do with delight? Do you consider it to be so? That is the question and that is our condemnation. Our condemnation is that even on this earth, we actually find some duties to be a delight when we are doing it for someone a human whom we love who has not done as much for us as the lord has done for us we make sacrifices and we are happy doing it for our children for our friends for our spouses and these sacrifices are done in cheerfulness and these people are they as worthy as our lord has any of them died on the cross for our sins did they give us food and shelter and clothing do they protect us from danger do they send heavenly angels to protect us and guide us on our way? Do they heal us of our diseases? No, they don't. But yet, we are willing to make such huge sacrifices for them. But he who has done all these things for us, we do not consider him worthy enough for us to fight the battle against self and be victorious and struggle knowing that he deserves the love that we are bestowing upon him. Don't you know that it will be a great condemnation on our path? It will, of course. So we must learn to put the Lord in the right place as first in our lives. And the battle against self, this good fight, will be, vict- will be victorious in it. We will get the victory in it. Paul has done his own. He has fought. Peter has fought and he has gone. The work is now left for us. To fight that battle against self and to also fight the battle of the Lord. To preach the gospel going from place to place and winning souls for Christ. Like we read in the conclusion in Conflict and Courage, page 356, paragraph 4 and 5. What the church needs in these days of peril is an army of workers who, like Paul, have educated themselves for usefulness, who have a deep experience in the things of God, and who are filled with earnestness and zeal. Sanctified, self-sacrificing men are needed. Men who will not shun trial and responsibility. Men who are brave and true. Men in whose hearts Christ is formed the hope of glory. And who with lips touched with the holy fire will preach the word. Will you who are listening to me now, whether young or old, accept the holy trust at the hands of our fathers? Are we preparing to fill the vacancies made by the death of the faithful? Will the apostles' charge be heeded, the call to duty be heard, amidst the incitements to selfishness and ambition that allure us? Will we do that? Well, the book is empty and your history will be written by you and my own history will be written by myself. Your response to these questions just asked, only you can say. You can either choose to follow selfish ambition and fight the battle against the Lord instead of against self, or you can choose like Paul and those who like him in past in the past have done the same, 
fight the battles of the Lord and against self and come out victorious. Preach the word with holy fire and with lips touched with that holy fire. Preach the word, sanctify ourselves, make sacrifices for the Lord that we may be victorious and take up the responsibilities that others have refused to take. It's left for us to make a response, but I hope and I pray that we all would respond positively to this invitation to fight the battles of the Lord and preach the word. Let us pray. Our dear loving Father in heaven, thank you so much for these words that we have heard. We thank you, Lord, that there is hope of victory in the battle against self and indeed it's a good fight. We pray, Father, that you will give us the grace that we may be able to fight the good fight. Especially we pray, Lord, that you will help us, that our love for you may increase, that we may understand what it means to behold Christ. Sometimes we open our Bibles to study and we seem not to get it, we are not understanding. But Lord, please grant us of your Spirit that as we study your Word, we shall behold Christ and be charmed with the loveliness of our Lord and that we may love Him above self and above the things of this world, that we may struggle against self and be victorious. Do this and take the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's a struggle going on in me. Lord, to pass this test, I need to see your gentle face looking down in love, wanting me to choose your will above my own. In the circumstance I find I'm in, I must surrender all to you, my friend, my every thought, word, and act must be in subjection to your will for me today. Dream. 
Jesus Christ from sin to pass this test within. I have the victory in Jesus Christ from sin.